0: It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Sarah Williams-Goldhagen. She is a contributing editor at Architectural Record and served as the architecture critic at The New Republic from 2005 to 2013. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times, American Prospect, Art in America. She's contributed essays to many publications, Assemblage, the Harvard Design Magazine, the Journal of the Society of Architectural Historians, and her new book we'll be discussing is... Welcome to Your World, How the Built Environment Shapes Our Lives. Sarah Williams-Goldhagen, welcome to Talk Nation Radio.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Uh, It's great to have you on. So I I, I take the uh, the general idea behind this book to be that that architecture and built environments in general are a, a much bigger factor and have a much greater impact on our lives, our mental health, our physical health than we realize or pay attention to. is that? Does that sum it up?
1: Yes, that does sum it up. And although <clears throat> there are certain aspects of, uh, of that statement, that general statement that people have known and some people are more sensitive to than others, what's different now is that we have concrete evidence uh, across a range of scientific studies showing just how profound uh, the built environment and the environment in general, uh, how profound an impact it is and what, how, what a profound role it plays in all sorts of ways that, that really almost no one would, could possibly imagine as well as ways that they could. I mean, who knew that if you were placed to recover from surgery in a room that had a, a window to a brick wall, you would fare worse. In terms of felt pain and, um, and healing than if you were across the hall in a room that had a view out to a pastoral landscape.
0: Well, uh, to, to play devil's advocate a little bit, I would guess a number of people might have said they had a strong preference and thought they were doing better in the room with the view, but they might have been dismissed as being uh, romantic and aesthetic and, and, and not, uh, not having good evidence for their claim, wouldn't you say?
1: Well, I would say um, that people, yes, people would know that they preferred it. I can't think that they would imagine that they would heal 30% more quickly yeah. uh, by, by being in one place versus another. By, um, it's the degree to, to, you know, people know, okay, you know, you walk into a cathedral, wow, it's soaring, it's cool, my spirits are uplifted. Sure, everybody knows that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, what they don't know is how profound those effects are physiologically psychologically in terms of the way it shapes our behavior. and what they don't know is how profoundly negative poor built environments have an impact on us because people tend to think of the built they sort of bifurcate the built environment into high architecture like fancy buildings, museums, whatever <clears throat> and then what everybody else gets to live in unless you're Bill Gates. Um, and what is clear now, is that that is a, a false dichotomy because design actually has a really profound impact on mental health, decisions, behavior, quality of life, physical health, uh, That which means that everybody deserves to get good design.
0: You, in, with regard to high ceilings, you even suggest that people are more open to creative new concepts if they are in a room with higher ceilings when they hear about the concept. Uh, I mean, it sounds like a metaphor, but it's it's actually the case, right?
1: Uh, it, it is. I mean, what they did is they had people take tests of creativity in rooms with eight-foot ceilings or something like that, and then they, had, they brought people back and they put them in a room with very high ceilings and they gave them different but similar tests scoring similar things tests on creativity and they, they thought more creatively in the room with high ceilings. And that gets to an important point, which is <clears throat> which is the word you use, metaphor, which is that we use what are called schemas, which is basically patterns of association. Uh, that we draw from living in our bodies in the world on Earth, experiencing gravity, having day follow night, and so on and so forth, um, that are drawn from our own experience of living as human beings on, on Earth. It's called embodied cognition. And many of those schemas are metaphorical. They're not literal. Uh, and so we have to expand out the kind of ways that we analyze what good design is and means beyond just the functional and the rational, because a lot of the things that have profound impact on us are things that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Like another study, um, a pretty famous one, they had, they uh, they gave, Personnel, people in human resources departments, uh, resumes, a stack of resumes to assess, and they handed them out on clipboards, whatever, and they said, Assess these candidates. And it turned out that the people doing the assessing assessed candidates as having more intellectual gravitas and being better suited for the position when they were holding clipboards that were heavier.
0: When when the candidates were, or when the assessors were,
1: when the assessors were holding clipboards on which they were looking at the resumes, the clipboards it, were heavier. Some clipboards it, were heavy, and some were light.
0: So the so they it sounds again like a metaphor. They interpreted metaphor. The, the the application as being as being weightier. The resume correct. as being weightier. Yeah,
1: that's correct. Right. Yeah. And so we're constantly, when we're in our environments, I mean, that's an example of what psychologists call priming. We're being primed. It's almost like the whole subliminal seduction thing in the 1970s and 80s, you know, that they flash an image up and it would have an impact, you know, it would make you go and buy this liquor because you saw a naked woman there. Well, actually, some of that is really true. Um, we're being primed by our built environments because that's where we live really, all the time. So the question is, um, what are we priming people to, how are we priming them to act and to communicate with one another, and so on and so forth. So there's the psychological component of this, and there's also the physiological component of this, which is what I started out talking about with, um, you know, healing from surgery and so on. And there's a lot of studies about that regarding exposure to nature, exposure to natural light, exposure to different kinds of natural light, and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, you talk about light, color, form, uh, sound, Mm -hmm. and smell, and texture, temperatures, uh, all these factors as actually impacting mental and physical and childhood development and intelligence and life expectancy. Uh, I mean, that's... N- 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 give, give us some more examples, and and what we might be doing uh, differently uh, with this knowledge.
1: Well, child development is <clears throat> is a good example because it one it's one that tugs at people's hearts a lot, and um and it's really important, right? I mean, everybody wants children to develop well. That's why we want better schools rather than worse schools for our children, and, and so on and so forth. So there was a study in the UK done, uh, which was sort of a long-term study of some 2,000, I think, students in 57 different classrooms, but the curriculum that they were being taught and the basic level of teaching ability of the teachers was and it was also controlled for socioeconomic status. And uh, these 57 classrooms were scored on six or eight or whatever dimensions of design, including color, uh, fostering creativity, flexibility, natural light, and so on and so forth. They followed students for two years, and by the end of two years, they found that the students in the best designed classroom, were nearly a full year ahead academically from the students in the worst designed classroom.
0: Yeah, it's remarkable. And and how were the designs different?
1: Uh, <clears throat> they fostered creativity. They were flexible, so you could rearrange for various different kinds of educational activities. They had much more natural light. They had access to the outdoors. Uh, I don't remember what the other one, the color, the, the use of color. You know, color is very complicated, but color, and, and it is to some extent culturally determined, but there are, we know physiologically that humans respond to certain colors in certain ways, and that's cross-cultural, and this is, that's just one little piece of knowledge. It's kind of obvious that we should be paying attention to this and really using it. And I think that the reason that people haven't in the past, and some people intuit it, but again, you know, it's sort of a discretion or doing, using these kinds of things has always been seen as discretionary. Yeah. Uh, well, you can do it, but you know only if you can pay for it and all this kind of stuff. It's not discretionary. It's critical. It's it's central.
0: Uh, Sarah Goldhagen, your book is called "Welcome to Your World: How the Built Environment Shapes Our Lives." You do take on this this argument in the book, but what about the argument that uh, boring boxes are just cheaper to make, and that we're up against problems of concentration of wealth and population explosion uh, that can't really be addressed by good design?
1: There's an easy answer to that, uh, and it's sort of a quip, But uh, and so I'll say it as a quip and then I'll explain it. But the quip is, it's just as expensive to design a bad building as a good building. Um, and the explanation, which is actually much more precise, is that at any level of investment, you can get a better design or a worse design. But you have to have you have to help people to understand that design is important in the first place, and you have to give them all the information that is in fact out there and is growing every day about what kinds of aspects of design really have an effect on people. Uh, in order to help them figure out what they want to do. So right now, big boxes are cheaper, but you know you can do an awful lot uh, with a big box design if you just hire someone who knows how to think these things through and who knows what the right priorities should be for the built environment. Because buildings, you know, here I'm talking about buildings, but also landscapes, once they're put in the ground, they're there for a really long time. They're not just there for the people who paid for them. They're not just there for the people who designed them. They're for everybody. People walk by them. They walk through them. They change ownership. They change. Uh, they change functions. Yeah. And so these are. This is really important. It's not just you know buying a nicer jacket versus buying a functional one.
0: It, it seems like it and just... they go
1: on for generations.
0: It, a lot of things are designed, right? I mean, it seems like the average, normal-priced automobile is beautifully sculpted with curves and angles. And so, I mean, if you could blow it up to the size of the building, I'd like to live in most yeah. <laughs> cars, right? But but I love that. But somehow, people buy the people who buy cars need that to be willing to mm-hmm. buy the car. But the people who buy buildings don't. They're happy with with ugly buildings.
1: Um. They're happy with ugly buildings because buildings are, if you think about the way that most people think of buildings or, you know, any kind of landscapes, because I talk about urban design and landscapes and buildings, all of them. Sure. Um, most people think of the environment that they inhabit as kind of stage that sort of neutral spaces, and what's important is what's going on on that stage, which is your life you're changing your kid's diaper, you're arguing with your wife, whatever, you know, you're uh, writing the next great American novel, and so on, and that's what you're engaged in. You're not really, people aren't really focused on their environments very much, and we have to shift that instead of take the metaphor of the stage set Instead of the stage set, what our built environments are, are our habitats. And they, just as, an animal's habitat will profoundly shape how that animal does, how it fares, how it evolves, and so on. These are our habitats.
0: Yeah the the, uh, the other hurdle that you take on in the book or well, one of them is that you describe people having a preference for the familiar that can mm-hmm. override a preference for what you say is demonstrably actually better and healthier and more enjoyable how does yep. uh, so people can become accustomed to a, a, an ugly habitat and develop a preference for it
1: sure i mean let's a uh, kind of a straightforward example is um Let's say you grew up in um, Levittown. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, where it, they, they're small, these are tiny houses, they're not very well designed, they're kind of, they're not very well put together, and they all look the same, right? But you grow up there. And so day after day, you had relations with your mother there, relations with your father, with your friends, you made friends, you went to school, and so on and so forth. You know, those memories become very deeply embedded and very and are constitutive of part of who you are and who you identify yourself as being. And so when you think about what you want, people like things that are familiar. And this is one of the great contributions of the research that uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky did in behavioral economics. Um, you know, they found that just the very fact that you own something or that it's familiar will, will skew you towards choo- choosing it, even if that object, in the first case, is objectively worthless. Yeah. Um, or or um, objectively, in the second case, not nearly as good as the alternative.
0: And so how do you break that cycle?
1: Uh, you give them better things to grow up in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so forget the old people and uh, save the children.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting problem that, um, yes, save the children is basically my, uh, that's part of my message. You know, as I was working on this book, I moved from a kind of very leafy, nice suburb outside of Boston, Newton, Massachusetts,
0: yeah.
1: uh, to East Harlem which has one of the highest concentrations of social housing anywhere in the country and is a very poor neighborhood. And, um, you know, I walk out of my front door every day and I see these deteriorating buildings, very poorly maintained, poorly built to begin with, and I think, you know, these people, these children, are not getting nearly as good a shot in life just by occupying these environments.
0: And, the deck and, is so
1: stacked.
0: And your book might have been even better if you hadn't been living in that uh, location, maybe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I think it was improved, <laughs> actually, because, honestly, uh, it started out as being really an investigation to into what uh, we now know about human perception and cognition, and how that changes how our understanding of people 's environments and The more research I did, and the more I looked around, um, the more uh, the more I saw the social component as absolutely central to the argument,
0: yeah. So, so let me ask a question as a as a non-scientist uh, luddite uh, who knows very little about neuroscience. Um, Why e- should you? <laughs> well, it seems to be central to to the case here, to understanding well. the evidence. Right, that uh, that a lot of our uh, experience of the environment is not conscious, but we can mm-hmm. go and examine brains in laboratories and discover that these aspects of our environment are having impacts on us. And and I wonder. How much that unaware impact really exists? I mean, it seems you give examples like Yale's art and architecture building. People, people non-consciously don't like it because they imagine touching its rough surface would would be, you know, it would hurt to to brush up against mm-hmm. it. And but that seems like a thought that could become conscious, especially after you've pointed it out to people. Um, and like something it would be very hard to discover in a brain in a laboratory. It seems, it seems more like something you're actually aware of. And, and you give all these examples of architects who, who you tend to use the word intuited. They intuited mm-hmm. that this material would have this effect prior to the existence of neuroscience. You know? So mm-hmm. is, it, is it really things that we're unaware of or things that some people are somewhat unaware of? What, is, what are we dealing with here?
1: Okay, these are, all, these are great questions, but, um, let me go through them one by one. Um, <clears throat> the reason in the book I use the word, and I explain this, that I use the word non-conscious, yeah. is to differentiate it from unconscious. Unconscious means you can't get access to this. Like, the fact that our heart is beating, is it, it, we're not conscious of that. I mean, we can sort of become conscious of it, but let's, actually, that's a bad example, but let's take... Different examples. Basically, what we know about human consciousness now um, makes it pretty clear that consciousness is a spectrum. And by consciousness, I mean uh, aware that you're you're aware of something, right? Yeah. Uh, and the human mind, the way that the mind is constructed, you can only hold one concrete, coherent. Uh, thought or percep—I call it—in your mind at one time, um, but there's all this other stuff going on that is under underneath, if you want to say it that way. Underneath that one thought, the thought being, "I got to go change the laundry and put it in the dryer," okay, or something, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> With all the other stuff, or with a lot of that other stuff that you're not really consciously thinking about, you could think about it. So it's just a matter of where you direct your attention and um, to the kind, what value you place on these things that are, you know, we're always in under cognitive assault. There's so much sensory stimulation every minute we live. Yeah, um, and so it's not that. It's uh, that we cannot be conscious of these things. It's that most people aren't most of the time. Um, and so if they focus on it, and they, you know, you might think, Ugh, I don't like the A&A building at Yale by Paul Rudolph because it has this concrete aggregate that's very stony, and if you rub up against it, it's going to hurt you. You could think all of that, or you could just say, blech, what an ugly building, Yeah, and move on. Because that's what most people would do. They're not thinking about the building. They're thinking about their life. So that's part of the answer. The second part of the answer is that um, it is why the use of cognitive neuroscience? two things. One, I used a lot of cognitive neuroscience and I used a lot of environmental psychology. So it was two different fields um, that I was really I looked at other fields as well, but those were two of the principal ones. And, um, yeah, it's not really very relevant that they've located the place in the brain where uh, we, we, the neurons in the brain that we use for spatial navigation, which are called grid cells. Uh, I agree with you about that. Yeah. That's not that important. What is important about this information, particularly from cognitive neuroscience, is that it used to be that, uh, okay, you mentioned two architects that I, whose works I discuss. One is Alvarado, the other is um, Franklin Wright, I think. <laughs> and I say that they intuited things. So up until now, throughout all of history, there were people who, of course, intuited that, you know, if you look at a surface texture, you it actually makes you sort of feel like you want to touch it or not touch it. Okay, yeah. But that was one theory and one approach of doing design in the built environment among a whole slew of other theories and approaches. So I happen to mention in my book the people who were intuiting these things. Richard Neutra is another one, okay? There were a lot of people who weren't doing it. And that's because they were under different ideas. They were interested in mass production. They thought that um, you know, there was a theory, for example, in Germany in the 1920s, that buildings should look as identical to one another as possible, because modern man moved a lot. and therefore you would want he would want to go to places that looked exactly the same in Munich as the one he's moving to in Heidelberg.: Yes. And, you know, what? so what my book shows is that there's a certain line of architectural thinking and design thinking, and that wins out, and we have the evidence for it.
0: And should part of getting to a world of better design and where everything mm-hmm. is well-designed uh, be making ourselves more aware and making others more aware of uh, the world around them and becoming much more conscious
1: yeah absolutely i mean it's sort of like here's an analogy you know i don't know how old you are i'm 50 58 years old so when i was growing up we we didn't really think about what we ate we just ate right you know it was like food you you felt hungry then you ate something you got away So then there was this whole revolution in food and suddenly we think we have to eat healthy, lots of vegetables. Food has become much more important in terms of what we eat, how we eat it, when we eat it, and so on and so forth, than it was when, certainly when I and my husband were growing up as kids. Yeah, Um, I'm calling for the same kind of revolution here about the built environment.
0: Yeah, I, I... It's a powerful case that that you make in the book. Um, we, we've got just a couple of minutes left. I wonder, mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, my my favorite thing with books that that I like is to is to find the things I want to argue with. So it, you you predict <laughs> you predict that by twenty fifty we're going to have another almost two and a half billion people needing mm-hmm. s- new spaces built for them to live and work in. I I can't imagine any design so good uh, that that, that's going to be, you know, survivable, uh, you know, that our our ecosystem, that our climate, I I mean, how can we plan for such a world? Uh, How can this planet even uh, possibly support such a world?
1: Look, I'm all with you. They, that Obviously, that's too many people. It's going to be crushing and so on and so forth. But it's a little like saying, you know, climate change is so important. Um, why are you thinking about climate change? Well, a lot of things are important. Yes. Um, but the environment is also important, and, and I show why. Uh, that's the first answer to your question. The second is that... There are a number of people who are breaking down um, the dimensions of design in um, in such a way you can make these, I mean, they're going to be built anyway. That was my point in the book. This building is going to happen. You can do it better or you can do it worse. Right. And here are the consequences of doing it worse, and here are the consequences of doing it better. What do you want to do? Um and even in very large scale buildings, there are people who are beginning to study and look at how you can make these you know these residential buildings in these unimaginably large megalopolises in Asia, for example, have offer the kind of humanistic dimensions that people need when they live in habitat.
0: I think uh, it's, like, I, I'm afraid we're, we're out of time. Okay, I wish good. we could go on for hours, but the book is a <laughs> wonderful place to start. If we're going m- to have a movement to have a better designed world, Welcome to Your World, How the Built Environment Shapes Our Lives by Sarah Williams Goldhagen. Sarah, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio.
1: David, it was my pleasure.